We read scripture this morning from Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. We begin reading at verse 16, and we read through the end of the chapter. And we read this chapter in connection with our treatment of Lord's Day 3. We hear the inspired word of God. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman. Wherefore I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon the land, and for their idols wherewith they had polluted it. And I scattered them among the heathen, and they were dispersed through the countries according to their way, and according to their doings I judged them. And when they entered into the heathen, whither they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said to them, These are the people of the Lord, and are gone forth out of his land. But I had pity for mine holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the heathen, whither they went. Therefore say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which ye have profaned among the heathen, whither ye went. And I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which ye have profaned in the midst of them, and the heathen shall know that I am the Lord, saith the Lord God, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. And ye shall dwell in the, and ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will also save you from all your uncleanness, and I will call for the corn and will increase it, and lay no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field, that ye shall receive no more reproach of famine among the heathen. Then shall ye remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight, for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord God, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities, and the wastes shall be builded, and the desolate land shall be tilled, whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say, This land that was desolate is become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. 
Then the heathen that are left round about you shall know that I, the Lord, build the ruined places and plant that which was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus saith the Lord God, I will yet for this be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock, as the holy flock, as the flock of Jerusalem in her solemn feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of men, and they shall know that I am the Lord. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. As I stated, we read this in connection with Lord's Day 3, questions and answers 6, 7, and 8, found in the back of our Psalters on page 4. Did God then create man so wicked and perverse? By no means. But God created man good, and after his own image, in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, heartily love him, and live with him in eternal happiness, to glorify and praise him. Whence then proceeds this depravity of human nature? from the fall and disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve, in paradise. Hence our nature has become so corrupt that we are all conceived and born in sin. Are we then so corrupt that we are wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed we are, except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. Beloved of our Lord, in our Lord Jesus Christ, We are a broken people living in a broken world. We acknowledged that when we looked at Lord's Day 2 last time. What is broken isn't just physical or emotional, but spiritual. We're sinners, and as sinners, we don't stand up to the standard that God has established for our lives. And because we don't maintain the commandments and the laws that He requires of us, love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, We are miserable. Now the next logical question is, how do we get to be so miserable? Is this the way God made me? And that becomes now the answer that's, or the question that's answered here in this Lord's Day. What is the reason? What's the cause of this misery? Adam and Eve were quick to blame God for the circumstances in which God placed them. God is sovereign over all things. Is it the case then that it's God's fault that evil is present in our lives? No, the answer is God created man good and after his own image. We're not just prone to hate God and the neighbor, but we're prone also to shift blame for the cause of our depravity. And that's what the catechism here is addressing. The temptation of human nature to try to blame everyone else for the circumstances and situations of our lives. I'm not responsible. And a person might say, if you had to be in the circumstances I was, you'd have done the same thing. If you had to live with the person that I have to live with, you also would be inclined to do the things that I do. It's necessary for me in this situation to lie because, after all, there's no other alternative. So quickly we can start to establish... That kind of excuse mentality. 
And we're not just shifting the blame to others. We realize Jehovah God is the one who's ordaining the whole of our life. And so ultimately we're blaming him. It's his fault because of the situation, the circumstances, the people that he's placed in my life. And that was the immediate response of Adam and Eve. They were quick to blame God. Eve said, it's the serpent that you created. Adam, it's the woman that you gave me. So quick to rise up and to pass an excuse for their own disobedience and depravity. And so are we. Ultimately, we're blaming God. God is the one who put these circumstances in this situation in my life. Therefore, it's his fault that I've fallen into this sin. This machine broke. This accident occurred. We're responsible to live in obedience in response to it. But instead, the depravity of our natures is that we refuse to take ownership of our own sinfulness. And quickly, we then pass the blame. God hates sin. And the Bible condemns sin. Sin is contrary to God's holiness. And as a holy and a righteous God, God requires of us that we love him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Now, even though sin is present according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he willed it. And even though it's under his perfect control, he's sovereign over everything that takes place in the world in which we live and in our lives. Even though it serves the purpose of his glory, God hates sin. And God is never the author of that sin. Now we can't understand how he could have planned it and how he could not then be guilty of it. We can't understand how is it that God, who is holy, who is righteous, could have allowed sin into this world. But the Bible teaches that the origin of sin is the devil and the devil's attempt to try to bring the human race into his camp. Jehovah God sovereignly ordaining all things, willing all things for his good, but that there's only one source of our misery, and that's man and our own willful disobedience. And so we look at that fall of man into sin as it's recorded, we know, in Genesis 3. But here in Ezekiel 36, we have explicit reference made to the sins of Israel, which are our own sins, and to the wonderful mercy of God by which God alone is able to bring relief by giving us a new heart and a new life. We look at the source of our misery, man's fall, the seriousness, and our only hope. God created man good, and after his own image, we read in Lord's Day 3. Jehovah God, the only wise one, the perfectly good God, created man as his highest creature, able to enjoy fellowship with God, and able to walk with God and to talk with God. That's a marvelous wonder that God gave to man. Physically, mentally, spiritually, man is the most remarkable creature of God. The height of man as the creature is this. This man is made in God's own image. One can't say that about any of the other creatures that God made. And we make a distinction then between the fact that God made all the creation and then God made man. And what God first did is he made man unique in such a way that man was able to bear that image. God made man different. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. Man in that way was higher than a bug or an animal or a planet or anything else that God had made. 
The whole of the creation we know reflects the glory of God. But no other part of creation does so like unto mankind. Man able to bear the image of God. And what is it that enables man or woman to bear that image? He's a personal being. He has a rational and a moral ability. And he has the ability to reason. He has a sense of what's right and what's wrong. And he's able to will. He's able to desire things. God made man in that regard different than every other creature. But God did something even more glorious. He not only made man capable of bearing the image, he actually gave that image to Adam and Eve in the beginning. So that the image of God, that God made man capable of bearing, was defined very clearly here in Lord's Day 3. After his own image in true righteousness and holiness, that he might rightly know God his creator, hardly love him, and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and praise him. The nature of his likeness to God was nothing physical. God's a spirit, but it was spiritual. And it was that holiness, that righteousness, and that true knowledge of God. It's striking that our other confessions, the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort, similarly identify the image of God in man by those three spiritual qualities. An image is something that reflects the likeness of another. What God looks like is not anything that we can see because God is a spirit. God is not defined, we know, by anything physical. But the image of God is comprised of that which is spiritual. There especially are two passages in the Bible that make explicitly clear this teaching that the image into which God created man was holiness, righteousness, and true knowledge. And those passages are Colossians 3 verse 10 and Ephesians 4 verse 24. Now what those passages do is they're speaking of the restoration. They're speaking of the fact that God sent Jesus to come and to restore that image in man. And the implication of those passages is that the image was lost. Man, though he retained the ability to bear an image, after the fall became an image bearer of the devil. And now in Jesus Christ, that image is restored. And so Colossians 3.10 talks about the restoration of the knowledge of God and God being able to restore man to that knowledge. Ephesians 4.24 refers to the restoration of God into the righteousness and the holiness of that image. Now, it's important for us just to understand a distinction. Other passages in the Bible, such as Romans 1 and 2, talk about the fact that all men have a knowledge of God. And so what are we talking about when we say the true knowledge of God is part of the image? And, for instance, Romans 1 and 2 that talk about all mankind having a knowledge of God. Romans 1 and 2 are talking about the knowledge of God as that which is distinct. It's the knowledge that all men have of creation. And the fact that they know that by virtue of creation, there is a God. They know his power. They know his majesty. And that knowledge is not a saving knowledge, but it's a knowledge that leaves them without an excuse for their wickedness and rebellion. And Romans 1 and 2 make that explicitly clear, that God revealed himself in all of his glory in the creation. And now what do men and women do? They look the other way. They pretend that they don't know it. And God will hold them without an excuse because they know there is a God and they know that that God ought to be worshipped. The knowledge that Colossians 
3.10 is talking about is a saving knowledge. A knowledge by which God takes a man, a woman, a child, and brings them into fellowship, communion with himself, and gives them to know him in a most intimate way so that they confess that they know God and they love him. Righteousness is the ability to do what's right. Holiness is that which adores God and loves God and lays hold on him and is devoted to God. The one who is holy is the one who wants to do his will. And the one who is righteous is the one who wants to order the whole of his life rightly and according to God's will. Man fell, and by virtue of the fall, he lost that righteousness, that holiness, and that intimate knowledge of fellowship and communion. God created man good. Again, God created man able with a personal, moral, rational ability to bear the image. Not only, but he gave him the image. Righteousness, holiness, and knowledge. So that man could live with God, could glorify God, and could praise God forever. What a tremendous, what an unspeakable privilege God gave to man higher than any of the other of the creatures that he had made, even higher than the angels. God established this personal relationship between Adam and the Creator. If we just think about the fact, when we make things, we can't make things to have a relationship with us. We may be into woodworking and we can craft and we can make marvelous pieces of furniture or other that are able to be beautiful and gorgeous and yet we can't have a relationship with them. We make meals we do all kinds of things, but that's lacking. Jehovah God was able to form and fashion with his hands man and then cause that man to now enjoy communion and fellowship with him as the living God. He was able to establish a relationship and a bond that was unlike anything that he had with the creature. That which distinguished again man from the whole of the universe. God didn't have that kind of relationship personally with the animals. He didn't have that kind of a relationship with all of the birds and the other aspects of the creation. But God established that relationship with man. He took man into the fullness of the joy that was his within the triune God. And he gave him to enjoy it. Now we can't even fully fathom that. But beloved, this is the wonder that we look forward to. Not only are we recreated in the enjoyment of that relationship, but we look forward to doing this to all eternity. What is it that we will do in heaven? We will heartily love him and live with him in eternal happiness to glorify and to praise him. He will be our all in all. And that's the glory that awaits. Now, the question we come back to with regard to this Lord's Day is this. Can we blame God, then, for our proneness to hate God and the neighbor by nature? That's what we've been delving into. We are prone by nature to hate God and the neighbor. And the answer is no. God created us good. Where, then, did that hatred come from? It came from the fall of man into sin. The sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve. This is why parents pray for their children in the womb. They not only pray for the physical development that's taking place in the womb, but they pray for a new heart. 
They pray for the wonder of regeneration. They realize that that child, apart from God's grace, is born with an evil, sinful, depraved nature. Why is it that we're born dead in sin and trespasses? It's not just because of bad circumstances or situations in our lives. It's because we have been given a sinful nature. And that nature is passed on now in our generations. We have, as Ezekiel puts it here, a cold, hard heart. And as a result, every man, woman, and child is born into this world with that cold, hard heart. In the beginning, Adam and Eve didn't have that hard heart. But now, every man, every woman, every child that's born has that cold, hard heart by virtue of their conception. God created man good, man sinned, and man fell. Man was created able to fall. And that's why we say that in theology, man was created lapsable. He was able to lapse. He was able to fall. He was able to lose that lofty position that God had given him. God gave man the ability to fall by giving him a free will. So that God created Adam and Eve with that free will by which they could do good or they could do evil. Adam and Eve morally were able to choose what's right, but they also had the ability to disobey. Now, if we want to look at the significance of that, God created man with that free will. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, their will became bound. All they could do now was sin. They're bound now to the devil. It's only in Jesus Christ, through a wonder of grace, that God frees again our will, that now we can do good, and we can do that which is pleasing to God. But at the same time, we still also are able to sin. But the difference is this. We can never fall from that glorious salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. And then we look forward to the day when we get to heaven, when our will will be bound. All we can do is praise God and glorify God and live in obedience to all eternity. God's command coming then to Adam and Eve with regard to those trees in the garden that he had placed, saying to them, you shall not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of that tree, you're going to die. But he said, you can eat of all the other trees, including the tree of life. Eating of them, you will live. God gave that command. And what was the result? Adam and Eve chose that which God forbid. Even though they could eat of all of the trees in the garden except that one, Adam and Eve failed. And we failed in them. Now Adam and Eve knew good and evil in the manner in which God did so long as they obeyed. When they walked in obedience, they loved good and they hated evil. And they maintained that walk with God. But when Adam willingly and deliberately took of that fruit that God had commanded, thou shalt not eat, Adam now is saying, I'm going to determine for myself what's good and what's evil. No longer am I willing to submit to God's will and to God's way. I'm not content to allow God to determine what is right and wrong. I'm now going to make that choice myself. And isn't that the spirit now with which we do battle? And we deal with this with our children. We as parents say to our child, don't touch that, it's hot. And what's the sinful desire of the child? I'm going to touch it anyway because I don't want to listen to what my parents say. I'm going to touch it so that I can determine myself what is 
right or what is wrong. And they get burned. And so it was for Adam and Eve. The devil went to Eve in order to make Eve his accomplice in order to bring Eve down into the way of temptation. And when Eve, the woman whom Adam loved then, came and showed Adam the fruit, Adam made a willing, deliberate choice. He wanted to determine good and evil for himself. And so he chose to do that. Eve, we could say, was in a sense tricked. Adam was not deceived. Adam did it deliberately. Adam knew what he was doing. And by virtue of Adam's sin, then he cast the whole human race into spiritual bondage because God had established Adam to be the head of the human race in a legal and in an organic sense. Legally, representing the whole human race, organically passing on his corruption now to the whole human race. Now, we may object to that. We may say, but why did the sin of Adam have to have such a devastating impact upon the whole human race? And why would it even affect me? But beloved, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. Passages like Romans 5, verse 12 and others emphasize the fact of Adam's connection to the whole human race. And important it is that the Bible then establishes Jesus as the second Adam and directs us to the fact that while the first Adam failed, we have now a second Adam who did not fail and who maintains perfectly the will of his heavenly Father. Just how Adam represented us and how Jesus represents us, again, we can't fully fathom, understand, but we believe that Jehovah God gave us the first Adam not only, but he gives us the second Adam. And through the second Adam, we are able to enjoy the wonder of life everlasting. The question we face then is this, how sinful are we? And the answer of the catechism is so wicked and perverse. Adam immediately, when he ate that fruit, experienced what it was to be separated from fellowship and communion with the living God. He knew what he had done. He had loved God. He knew God. Now what was his response? God put flaming angels between himself and the garden. Adam knew immediately the implications of what he had done. He experienced a spiritual death now in the sense that he was filled with the lust of the flesh. He now wanted to pursue the things that were sinful and evil. Before he didn't. Now he desires those things. And the power of physical death also began to reign on him. Now that's hard for us as children to understand because we know that Adam lived to be 930 years old. So how is it that he could live to be 900 years old and yet experience the beginnings of that death? But that death was ruling on him his whole life long as now the bitter consequences of physical death also affected him. The result of the fall is that Adam and Eve brought the whole human race into condemnation with them. And Ezekiel doesn't mince any words in the effect of that here as we read it in Ezekiel 36. As Ezekiel speaks here to the house of Israel in verses 16 and 17 and 18 and following, he speaks of the horror of their sinfulness. Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own way and by their doings. Their way was before me as the uncleanness of a removed woman, that is, a menstruating woman. It was filthy, it was corrupt. Wherefore, I poured my fury upon them for the blood that they had shed upon this land. 
Ezekiel says, and for the idols wherewith they had polluted it, I scattered them among the heathen. And what happened then? They continued to profane my holy name. So that this people violated God's will. They walked contrary to God and they pursued the way of sin. In verse 35, he makes it even more explicit. This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and inhabited. What happened to the Garden of Eden? It was made so that nobody could come into it and there were guards, angels with flaming swords put at the entrance. Such is the way in which now God's people find themselves of themselves. We are corrupt. We are polluted. We are as those who have no hope and there's no possibility of our experiencing communion and fellowship with God. We've lost righteousness. We've lost holiness. We cannot know God in any kind of intimate manner. They are unclean, Ezekiel says. They are all gone out of the way. And think of David in Psalm 51. As he writes Psalm 51, David doesn't try to come up with excuses for his sins or for the situation. He says, I am inclined to all evil. And why is it? I was conceived and I was born in sin. He acknowledges that he sinned against God and that his nature is such that it's corrupt. Now our temptation is to always trust the good that we've done. Always emphasize the good things that we're capable of doing. Accept me for the good that I've accomplished. But by nature, we are wholly incapable of doing any good. We're inclined to all evil. The nature of the fall is that we look and we act like the devil by nature. And that natural love is evident. We love the pleasures of sin. We love the pursuit of sin. We want to determine what's right and wrong ourselves. We're not going to submit to the instruction and the regulations of others. And so sin is so fixed within us that we love it. We delight in it. We pursue it. Now, we don't like what it does to us, but we still love it and we still engage in it. And from early on again with our children, we see that in them. We tell them no. And they become experts at resisting our will and resisting the will of those around them. That sinfulness is bound up in their nature. They didn't need to be taught it. It's inherent to their nature. And if we try to control the lusts and the desires of our sinful nature and we try to resist evil and just think good thoughts, you know how hard that is? How impossible almost it is for us to do that. Now, by nature, we can't do it. And that's the point here. By nature, what happens? I'm at the center of my life. Life is all about me. It surrounds me. And I'm going to do whatever I want. I don't care what anybody else thinks. Everyone around me might suffer, but I'm in it for myself. And we're wise then to do evil, but when it comes to doing good, we're not capable. We can't change ourselves by nature. Now, it's important, beloved, that we understand Lord's Day 3 here is a confession about you and me. And as we take Lord's Day 3 in our lips, we make this confession concerning ourselves, that we acknowledge that this is my nature, and my nature is inclined to all of these sins. It's so corrupt that I'm conceived and born in sin. My nature is such that I'm wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness. And the only hope is that God comes to me, a dead sinner, and gives me life that's from above. And even having that life that's from above, 
my nature yet remains in me depraved. It's important, beloved, that we understand this confession to be your and my confession. That we don't rise above Israel and say, but that was Israel's experience perhaps in Ezekiel 36, but we're different. No, beloved, we are in the same camp as Israel. And what does the next chapter of Ezekiel describe? The familiar and the infamous description of dead bones. What is Israel as? They're as dead bones. There's no life in them. That's you and I of ourselves. There's no life in our bones. Spiritually dead can do nothing that's pleasing to God. But what does God do? God speaks to those dead bones. God causes life to come into them from above. God performs a marvelous wonder of mercy. One of the greatest dangers, beloved, is this. We confess total depravity, but it's just a doctrine we confess. And we don't allow it to affect our own confession as to who we are. We blame everyone else for our misery. We're not willing to confess my depravity. We're quick to blame others. If life wasn't so difficult, I wouldn't drink so much. If work wasn't so hard, I wouldn't cheat and I wouldn't be inclined to steal. Satan is always ready to fan our natures and to cause us to pursue our own selfish endeavors. The devil knows that we delight in and that we easily fall into sin. And so he keeps urging us on in those sins. And so, beloved, important it is for us to know, I am depraved as to my nature. And what does that mean? I can't trust myself. I know how weak I am. I can't trust myself with ads, perhaps, or with things that pop up on my phone because the devil's going to use them so quickly to draw me into the ways of sin. I can't trust myself talking with someone who's speaking evil, perhaps, of someone else because my mouth and my lips are going to respond and I'm going to start telling lies and I'm going to start trying to promote myself. My weakness and my sin is so serious that it would lead me down the road that leads to destruction and hell. Is there any hope? There's no hope in me. I can't look at myself. Beloved, the ministers and the churches that defend and hold to common grace confess total depravity, but they give their own definition of it. And they make a distinction between total depravity and absolute depravity. And that distinction is meant to impress upon God's people this truth that man is not dead. Man is not so bad. He hasn't completely lost the image of God. He still retains a little bit of good within him by which he still is able to do and to pursue good things. It's intended to teach, beloved, that there's still in fallen man something with which God's pleased spiritually and some good. His bones, in other words, are not dead, as Ezekiel 37 points out. The emphasis then is this. Ezekiel, he's being too hard on man. The passages in the Bible that talks about man being dead apart from Christ, that's too harsh. Absolute depravity would mean that man is dead and man is bad all the time. But they say, just look at man. He can do all kinds of good things. He can actually be pretty good at times. So we need to make our theology not based on what the Bible teaches, but our experience instead. The fact that this man didn't kill everybody. He may have killed some, but he didn't kill more. 
That shows that there's something in him yet that held him back, something good. He let people live that hated him. He didn't commit adultery as much as he desired to do so. So therefore, that one is not entirely depraved. Beloved, is there a difference in God's eyes between absolute, total depravity? Is there a difference in God's eyes between one who murders many but doesn't murder more? To hate someone is to kill them. And not loving them is murder. And we realize that sin has to do with the heart. In the eyes of God, every second that I don't confess and walk according to faith and I'm not living to the honor of God and to, in obedience to his commandments, I'm sinning. And I'm walking in a manner of corruption. Now, is that corruption expressed outwardly in every way that it could? God sovereignly is causing it. That sin is restrained. God's doing that not out of love for individual wicked people, but he's doing it for the good of his church and for the glory and honor of his name. But I need to understand and confess that I am so wretched by nature that I am inclined to every sin. There's no sin from which I'm exempted. And I'm a fool if I don't acknowledge and admit that. I'm inclined to lie and to cheat and to steal and to commit adultery and to murder. And if I refuse to acknowledge it, then I don't know my own depravity. And I don't know my need for Christ. Beloved, this is way too serious of a doctrine to play games with. When God says that man, apart from Christ, is dead, we confess, man is dead. And we look at all the beautiful examples the Bible gives about being raised from the dead. And we see those are all beautiful pictures of the marvelous work of God's grace in our lives. God has taken me who is dead and he's given me a life that's from above. He's raised me out of that death into life. By nature, inclined to all wickedness, period. Dead bones with no life in them. Now, beloved, that doesn't mean that we're not going to be fooled sometime. And we can't judge hearts. We realize that. We see something and we think, oh, that person is doing something that's really good. But we need to realize the unregenerate man, apart from God's grace, can do nothing that's pleasing in God's eyes. And perhaps it looks good. We judge them in a manner that reflects charity, but we leave ultimately the judgment in God's hand. And this isn't merely the demand of our rejection of common grace. This is the demand that the Heidelberg Catechism wrote hundreds of years before common grace was even a thing. Can the wicked, unregenerate man do any good? That's the question that's being raised here. And the answer is no. He can do no good. Total depravity applies to the nature of every single person that's ever lived. And we acknowledge that depravity. Theologically, by the way, there is a legitimate distinction that, that can be made between absolute and total depravity. Theologians state that absolute depravity can be used to refer to those concerning whom there's no possibility of salvation. That is, the angels who fell. Whereas total depravity is that which is applied to man, among whom there is that possibility of God working the wonder of salvation. But beloved, what's our only hope? And that's where the catechism directs us to the marvelous wonder of the gospel. Except we are regenerated by the Spirit of God. What a wonder. God did not leave us in such a dismal state 
But God gives to us to know relief. God gives us to know hope. And that hope is only by God according to the wonder of His Spirit. Jesus alone is able to work a miracle and a wonder. He gives life to those who are dead. He takes a heart of stone and He replaces it with a heart that's fleshly. And that's the marvelous wonder Ezekiel here is talking about. In the midst of the death and the destruction and the sinfulness of Israel, what is their only hope? Verses 25 and following. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean. From all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And ye shall keep my judgments and do them. What a wonder of grace. God gives us to know the blood of Jesus Christ through which we've been washed and we've been cleansed. And God gives us to know the wonder by which he has performed a work of grace in our lives. We who were dead have been made alive. And such is the power of the Spirit that the Spirit now is at work within us. That though that evil nature yet clings to our flesh, I can and I will keep the statutes and the judgments of God and do them out of love and thankfulness for what God has done. Jesus Christ restores us in a right relationship again with the living God. And the wonder of God's grace is that we're given to see the blood of Jesus Christ and we're able to see the wonder of it, that through that blood, I'm washed, I've been cleansed, I've been forgiven. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit as I walk by faith. He recreates me in the image of God as Colossians 3 verse 10 and Ephesians 4 24 teach. Now, beloved, how do I see evidence of that? How do you see evidence of that in your life? First of all, you confess your sin. You humble yourself before a holy and righteous God and you acknowledge, I am a sinner worthy of death. God gives by His grace the ability for us to say the description that's given here in question eight, that's me by nature. Am I so corrupt that I am wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all wickedness? Indeed, I am except I be regenerated by the Spirit of God. That's me. And beloved, the greatest evidence on this side of the grave of Christ's work in you and in me is this. We don't shift the blame. And when we do, we acknowledge it and we confess it. We don't admit and confess our sin with a but. But we say, I've sinned before God. And we acknowledge the seriousness of that sin. And I say, I am incapable of doing any good of myself. I need Jesus. And any good that's evident in my life, that's not my doing. That's the marvelous wonder by which God has taken me a dead stone, has taken me dead bones, and has worked life within me. And now he who before ordained good works has worked them in me in order that I might now by faith be busy in them to his glory and to his honor. This isn't my work. This is his work in me. I need Jesus, and I need Jesus every moment of my life. Beloved, by God's grace, that's your confession. That's my confession. And we show that we not only know him, 
But that by the power of that knowledge, I know myself. And I know how much then I need him and how indebted I am to him. And beloved, this knowledge moves us then that we glorify him, we praise him all our days. Our mission in life, beloved, is not to make ourselves look better. Our mission in life is more and more to point to God and what great things he's done for me, an undeserving sinner. My desire is to testify what great things God has done, to make known to those around me the wonder of the love of God in Jesus Christ, a love I don't deserve, a love that I can't even begin to fathom, that God, for his own name's sake, has cleansed me and washed me in order that I might know him as my Lord and my Savior. Again, note that emphasis throughout Ezekiel here. Verse 32, Not for your sakes do I this, saith the Lord God. Be it known unto you. Be ashamed and confounded. God doesn't do this for us. He does it for his own glory in order that his name be exalted and magnified. And beloved, by his grace then, we live lives of thankful service to this great God. This God who's taken me who was dead and made me alive. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, comfort our hearts. Work in us confession concerning our sins and our depravity and our sinfulness and cause that we might look to thee, confessing the greatness of thy grace, thy mercy, thy love, and that we might walk humbly before thy face, thankful that thou hast given unto us to know a life that is from above, a life that can never be taken from us, a life that can never be lost. But though we die, we will live in the enjoyment of that fellowship, that love, that communion forever. Amen.